The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Battle of Ruritania, Episode 9. The Zinti didn't need much time to pack their camp. They had wandered all their lives, and they knew how to quickly stow their worldly things. They yoked their horses, huddled in their wagons, and set their wheels in motion. After months of habitation, a few blackened pits, and a ring of stamped-down snow were the only signs that they had been in this meadow at all. But travel was a harder task. Hooves sank into crusty ice, and men had to walk abreast, urging their horses onward. Elizabeth and Milos trotted alongside, powerless to speed them up. The animals trudged, the wagons hobbled and squeaked. The dirt road was only a river of white, and the woods unfolded infinitely around them. Elizabeth wondered whether they'd reach the castle by nightfall, and how dangerous it might be to press on into the dark. But the hours still passed. Trees scattered and the caravan turned onto a highway. The snow was trampled down to the gravel, and the wooden wheels easily fit into the tracks left by motor vehicles. They picked up speed, bouncing fluently through farmland, over stone bridges, across train tracks. Now and then, a car drove around them. One driver screamed slurs through his window, shaking a hateful fist. But mostly, the land was still. All Elizabeth heard was the clop of horseshoes and the occasional caw of a blackbird. Pardon me, came a voice. Are you American? Elizabeth lurched at the sound of her own language. She slowed her horse, allowing one wagon to catch up to her. In the driver's seat, were two figures, a mustached man who stoically held the horse's reins, and a woman, perhaps twenty-five years old, bundled in a headscarf and shawl. Last time I checked, said Elizabeth, ever been there? Yes, the woman said brightly. I once used to live in the Bronx. The Bronx? In New York? Yes, yes, she exclaimed. I was born in the hospital of Bellevue. Bellevue, Elizabeth returned. Why, you're just as American as I am. What brings you here? The woman blushed. My mother, she worked as a maid. She lived in New York for many years, but she was sucked in the end, and my grandfather became sick. I was seven when we came to Europe. She shrugged, and ever since... This has been my family. What's your name? Lavinia. Well, that's as pretty a name as I've heard all year. Lavinia smiled into her wrappings. This is my cousin, Vadim. The mustached man heard his own name and nodded tiredly at Elizabeth. Lavinia leaned sideways and said, as confidentially as their distance would allow, I haven't spoken English in so very long, 
When my mother and I would gossip about the others, we would speak only in English. It made everybody crazy. Elizabeth smiled at this. She let a moment pass, shifting in her saddle. How she marveled at such moments, when a peasant girl on the other side of the planet spoke of such familiar places. They are scared, Lavinia said, with unexpected gravity. They will not say so, the men especially. They wish to be tough, but the girl from the swamp, she makes them so very scared. Elizabeth knitted her brows. What girl? What swamp, for that matter? There was a girl, said Lavinia. Vadoma. I found her myself, in the forest. She came from another camp. Old Babik knows them. They were zinti like us. But something happened to them, something terrible. Where is she? In the wagon, but asleep. She is never awake for long. She only drinks, a little water, a little soup. She's very sick. I'm afraid for her. Did she say anything? Only one thing. The ugly men. Elizabeth nearly leapt from her horse. The phrase echoed in her head. The ugly men. How else would a young girl describe a humanoid with the face of a monkey? How many simians would a girl like her have ever seen? And what did this mean? Had Prince Michael's abomination already attacked another Roma camp? Had anyone else escaped? Are you sure? said Elizabeth. She said the ugly men, as in more than one. Oh yes, certainly. She was clear as could be. Do you... do you know what she was talking about? Lavinia raised a gloved hand to her face. Are they, the ugly men, why we are moving? Elizabeth looked away. Her mind reeled. The prince had already attacked. The Manzi project had already been tested. Blood had already been shed. And who had known? Not Rudolph in his castle. Not the Romani in their camp. Whatever had happened, no one had ever learned the fate of those other folk on the other side of the Black Swamp. For all they knew, they had been wiped from the map, every last man, woman, and child, except for the girl in their wagon. But what could they do except keep moving, forward, down the road, toward Castle Brutzen? At the same time, Elizabeth wondered, will we even be safe there? If the prince is really so ruthless, is anywhere safe? Lieutenant Schmidt hadn't seen a convoy in several years, and back then it was a line of horse-drawn carts. He'd never imagined himself in a truck wedged against a thick-jawed driver, leading five other vehicles down the roads of Ruritania. Yet here they were, rolling across the winter landscape. Civilian cars pulled over, giving the military vehicles wide berth. Children, playing in the snow, stopped to gape at the massive machines rumbling past them. 
they marveled at the forest-green shells and the tiny Ruritanian flags flapping over their hoods. Infantrymen stood on the rear bumpers, clinging to special leashes. The children waved, but the soldiers did not wave back. Schmidt knew these byways so well. He had patrolled every kilometer of his homeland, and he knew every nook by heart. He knew how the road would curve, when the shrubbery would open up, and what it would look like when Kasselbrutzen emerged on the horizon. He swallowed hard at the sight of it, that charming chateau, its storybook towers. Schmidt knew the face of war as well as anyone, but he had never imagined the battlefield would be here, on his very own soil, a short drive from his childhood home. At the edge of a field, the truck made a slow arc in the snow. The truck parked, facing away from the castle. The rest of the convoy made the same maneuver. Now, five trucks stood in a line, each evenly spaced from the others. The soldiers leapt to the ground and gathered their rifles. They arranged themselves into a single file, an unbroken wall of wool trench coats and spiked helmets. Lieutenant Schmidt stepped out of the truck to inspect them. The air was cold. The vista was motionless. The sky was a watercolor of gray and fading sun. But they didn't have to wait long. Dr. Gelkin rounded one of the trucks. He practically skipped over to the queue of soldiers, chuckling and mumbling as he came. He wore a voluminous fur coat and cap, better suited to an heiress than to a grown man. He snickered at each man, making his way down the line until he reached the lieutenant. The soldiers showed stony expressions, their chests puffed out, their guns balanced on boxy shoulders. "'Good afternoon,' said Gelkin. "'Lieutenant, I hope you appreciate what you are witnessing, the imminent obsolescence of man as a fighting force.' Schmidt tightened every muscle in his face. "'We await your orders, Herr Doctor.' "'My orders, yes,' said Gelkin. "'Gentlemen,' You are dismissed. The soldiers didn't move. Whether they didn't understand the doctor or couldn't believe what they were hearing, Schmidt couldn't tell. But a part of him was relieved. He had sent enough young men to their deaths, and the least he could do was spare the lives of these cadets. Dismissed, Schmidt declared. Return to headquarters immediately. Clear the field. Mach schnell! The men broke rank. They turned around and jogged away, past the trucks, toward the open road. The drivers followed. Soon all twenty-five men were a black blotch in the distance, which vanished over a white rise. Gelkin beamed. It seems, Lieutenant, that our timing is impeccable. Schmidt followed Gelkin's gaze until his own eyes fell on a startling sight. 
six small wagons, painted bright colors, inching up the nearby road. Schmidt knew they were gypsies. He had seen enough of their wagons, broken up enough of their camps, arrested enough of their pickpockets. There was no doubt who these people were and where they were going. These were precisely the gypsies they had planned to attack, their test subjects, as Gilkeen put it. But what were they doing here? Were they really heading to Castle Brutzen? And did they somehow expect to be allowed inside? What kind of Ruritanian noble allowed himself to fraternize with thieves and harlots? Did he plan to house them? To grant them sanctuary? Herr Doctor, Schmidt said, your orders. The doctor chewed his lip. Schmidt raised a pair of binoculars to his eyes. Together, doctor and soldier watched the caravan approach. They saw the rickety wagons, the drivers, the men walking alongside. They saw the two riders as well, a man and woman, dressed in tailored coats. They all slouched and stumbled. The horses' heads bowed low. They had barely the strength to march on, much less defend themselves from assault. Herr Doctor, said Schmidt again, your orders. Slowly but surely, the caravan reached the castle grounds. They crawled into the cul-de-sac, around the obelisk, and toward the main gate. Herr Doctor, Schmidt squawked, your orders, please. My orders, said Gilkeen at last, are to wait. And if Schmidt were honest with himself, though he would never have admitted it to anyone, not even a priest, he was so glad to hear those words. They would wait for the caravan to turn into the castle gate. They would watch, passive, as the wagons, one by one, disappeared through that grand opening. And then, when the last human shapes were gone from sight, a massive door would close behind them. Castle Brutzen would be sealed shut. Perhaps Schmidt even believed, deep in his heart, that the whole affair was over. The Baron would be summoned to court. A warrant would be issued, and the castle would be searched. That Hungarian Cyclops would be arrested, or at least shot, trying to escape. The evidence would mount. A trial would ensue and the baron would be convicted of treason and brought before a firing squad. His castle would be liquidated, and some other noble would take it over. All this would transpire as a bland legal proceeding, the shuffle of papers and the duel of words that civilization required. But then Gelkin reached into his collar. He pulled a silver whistle from his breast. He caressed it in his cracked fingers. Now, said Gelkin, the castle is closed. It is time. Lieutenant Schmidt, you may open the trucks. Schmidt felt a shockwave through his vertebrae. Open the trucks, Herr Doctor. Go to the rear doors, instructed Gelkin, 
and remove the latches. The doors will open of their own accord. Schmidt took a step back toward the trucks. He waited for further explanation, but none came. Then, just as he turned away, Gelkin added, Do be careful, Lieutenant. Your predecessor was quite clumsy. In fact, his clumsiness is the reason you have this position. Gelkin smiled, showing blackened teeth. But you saw him. I saw him? Schmidt shook his head. Where? Then? He was in the pictures I showed you of the last test site. There are pieces of him in several photographs. So, as I said, do be careful. Schmidt forced his feet forward. He felt empty, disembodied. He reached the first truck. He raised his eyes to the double doors. The steel was freshly minted, unblemished by use. In the middle of the doors, a bolt was drawn between them. All Schmidt had to do was stand on the bumper, hold himself up by the leash, and pull that bolt away. The doors would fall open, and Dr. Gelkin would handle the rest. Such a simple task. No easier way to serve his country. Just follow orders. Be the good soldier. Ruratanin ube alles. Schmidt lifted himself up. He was eye-level with the bolt. He reached out a gloved hand. He glanced back. The castle was just visible in the corner of his eye. He wondered how many people were inside. Gypsies, civilians, families, armed or unarmed, children perhaps, just like his own daughters. This was not the Eastern Front, not trenches and craters and barbed wire. This was a virgin field, a beautiful chateau, the soil of his birth. Schmidt watched his own puffs of breath, short and fast. He felt the throb of his temples. He pulled the bolt. It moved easily. He yanked so hard that the iron bar dropped from his hands, clanging against the bumper. The sound startled him, and he let go of the leash. As Schmidt's boots hit the ground, he heard the whisper of oiled hinges. The doors fell outward, as if guided by spectral hands. Schmidt backed away, watching the darkness within. Schmidt had seen the creatures, yes, but only once, and only through that narrow slot. Now, there was no barrier to protect him. The crimson face emerged first, followed by a pair of ropey arms. The marble eyes turned to Schmidt, then blinked. The sound was followed by a primal odor, the nostrils dilated with every loud exhale. The creature moved on all fours into the grim afternoon light. Just as it climbed out, touching its toes to the ground, a second creature emerged behind it. There were no bonds or chains, no ropes or harnesses. The creatures were free, 
as free as any beast in the wild. Next, Gilkeen shouted. Next, next! Dreamily, Schmidt scampered to the next truck. He lifted himself up and pulled the latch. This time, he felt no control of his body. His every movement felt automated, programmed. The bolt thumped against the earth. The doors swung out. Two more faces squinted into the fading sun. Again, he did this, and again, until every truck was open. The creatures meandered into the snow. They grunted and swiveled their heads. They hopped up and down. They beat their fists against the snow. Excitement built within them as they explored their new surroundings. Schmidt could only retreat to the side of the truck and press his back against its cold surface. He panted hard. He held a hand against his chest. He could feel the frantic drum of his own heart. Gelkin turned to the creatures. He jammed the whistle into his lips. He blew. A shrill note pierced the air. You've been listening to The Battle of Ruritania, Episode 9, written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown are produced by Airmail Media in beautiful Providence, Rhode Island. Music provided and licensed by audioblocks.com. To learn more about the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net.